too, precisely like that of a modern kitchen chair all wood, slightly concave to promote the sitter's comfort, and supported by three legs curving outwards. This is simple, convenient, and admirably adapted for long service. For a specimen of more ornamental work, the folding stool in the same glass case should be examined. The supports are crossed in a similar way to those of a modern camp stool, and the lower parts of the legs carved as heads of geese, with inlaying survivory to assist the design and give richness to its execution. Illustration, an Egyptian of high rank seated, from a photo by Mansell and Company of the original wall painting in the British Museum. Period, B.C. 1500-1400. Portions of legs and rails, turned as if by a modern lathe, mortise holes and tenons. Fill us with wonder as we look upon work which, at the most modern computation, must be 3.000 years old, and maybe of a date still more remote. In the same room, arranged in cases round the wall, is a collection of several objects which, if scarcely to be classed under the head of furniture, are articles of luxury and comfort, and demonstrate the extraordinary state of civilization enjoyed by the old Egyptians, and help us to form a picture of their domestic habits. Amongst these are boxes inlaid with various woods, and also with little squares of bright turquoise blue pottery let in as a relief, others veneered with ivory, wooden spoons, carved in most intricate designs, of which one, representing a girl amongst lotus flowers, is a work of great artistic skill, boats of wood, headrests, and models of parts of houses and granaries, together with writing materials, different kinds of tools and implements and a quantity of personal ornaments and requisites. For furniture, various woods were employed, ebony, acacia or sunt, cedar, sycamore, and others of species not determined. Ivory, both of the hippopotamus and elephant, was used for inlaying, as also were glass pastes, and specimens of marquetry are not uncommon. In the paintings in the tombs, gorgeous pictures and gilded furniture are depicted, for cushions and mattresses. Linen cloth and colored stuffs, filled with feathers of the waterfowl, appear to have been used, while seats have plated bottoms of linen cord or tanned and dyed leather thrown over them, and sometimes the skins of panthers serve this purpose. For carpets they used mats of palm fiber, on which they often sat. On the whole, an Egyptian house was lightly furnished, and not encumbered with so many articles as are in use at the present day. The above paragraph forms part of the notice with which the late Dr. Birch, the eminent antiquarian, formerly at the head of this department of the British Museum, has prefaced a catalogue of the antiquities alluded to. The visitor to the museum should be careful to procure one of these useful and inexpensive guides to this portion of its contents. Some illustrations taken from ancient statues and bas-reliefs in the British Museum, from copies of wall paintings at Thebes, and other sources give us a good idea of the furniture of this interesting people. In one of these will be seen a representation of the wooden headrest which prevented the disarrangement of the coiffure of an Egyptian lady of rank. A very similar headrest, with a cushion attached for comfort to the neck, is still in common use by the Japanese of the present day. Illustration, Bacchus and Attendants Visiting Icarus, reproduced from a BAS relief in the British Museum. Period, about AD 100. Greek Furniture. An early reference to Greek furniture is made by Homer, who describes coverlids of dyed wool, tapestries, carpets, and other accessories, which must therefore have formed part of the contents of a great man's residence centuries before the period which we recognize as the meridian of Greek art. 
In the second vase room of the British Museum the painting on one of these vases represents two persons sitting on a couch, upon which is a cushion of rich material, while for the comfort of the sitters there is a footstool, probably of ivory. On the opposite leaf there is an illustration of a has relief in stone. Bacchus received as a guest by Icarus, in which the couch has turned legs and the feet are ornamented with carved leaf work. We know, too, from other illustrations of tripods used for sacred purposes, and as supports for braziers, that tables were made of wood, of marble, and of metal, also folding chairs, and couches for sleeping and resting, but not for reclining at meals, as was the fashion at a later period. In most of the designs for these various articles of furniture there is a similarity of treatment of the head, legs, and feet of lions, leopards, and sphinxes to that which we have noticed in the Assyrian patterns. The description of an interesting piece of furniture may be noticed here, because its date is verified by its historical associations, and it was seen and described by Pausanias about 800 years afterwards. This is the famous chest of Sipsilis of Corinth the story of which runs that when his mother's relations, having been warned by the oracle of Delphi, that her son would prove formidable to the ruling party, sought to murder him, his life was saved by his concealment in this chest, and he became ruler of Corinth for some 30 years BC 655-625. It is said to have been made of cedar, carved and decorated with figures and bas-reliefs, some in ivory, some in gold or ivory part gilt and inlaid on all four sides and on the top. The peculiar laws and customs of the Greeks at the time of their greatest prosperity were not calculated to encourage display or luxury in private life, or the collection of sumptuous furniture. Their manners were simple and their discipline was very severe. Statuary, sculpture of the best kind, painting of the highest merit in a word, the best that art could produce were all dedicated to the national service in the enrichment of temples and other public buildings the state having indefinite and almost unlimited power over the property of all wealthy citizens. The public surroundings of an influential Athenian were therefore in direct contrast to the simplicity of his home, which contained the most meager supply of chairs and tables, while the chef d'oeuvres of Phidias adorned the Senate House, the theater, and the temple. There were some exceptions to this rule, and we have records that during the later years of Greek prosperity such simplicity was not observed. Alcibiades is said to have been the first to have his house painted and decorated, and Plutarch tells us that he kept the painter Agatharchus a prisoner until his task was done, and then dismissed him with an appropriate reward. Another ancient writer relates that the guest of a private house was enjoined to praise the decorations of the ceilings and the beauty of the curtains suspended from between the columns. This occurs, according to Mr. Perkins, the American translator of Dry Fox German book, Kunstian House. In the Wasps of Aristophanes, written B.C. 422, the illustrations, taken from the best authorities in the British Museum, the National Library of Paris, and other sources, show the severe style adopted by the Greeks in their furniture, Roman furniture, as we are accustomed to look to Greek art of the time of Pericles for purity of style and perfection of taste, so do we naturally expect the gradual demoralization of art in its transfer to the great Roman Empire from that little village on the Palatine Hill, founded some 750 years B.C. Rome had spread and conquered in every direction, until in the time of Augustus she was mistress of the whole civilized world, herself the center of wealth, civilization, luxury, and power.
Antioch in the east and Alexandria in the south ranked next to her as great cities of the world. From the excavations of Herculaneum and Pompeii we have learned enough to conceive some general idea of the social life of a wealthy Roman in the time of Rome's prosperity. The houses had no upper story, but were formed by the enclosure of two or more quadrangles, each surrounded by courts opening into rooms, and receiving air and ventilation from the center open square or court. The illustration will give an idea of this arrangement. In Mr. Hungerford Pollen's useful handbook there is a description of each room in a Roman house, with its proper Latin title and purpose, and we know from other descriptions of ancient Rome that the residences in the imperial city were divided into two distinct classes that of Domus and Insula, the former being the dwellings of the Roman nobles, and corresponding to the modern Palazzi, while the latter were the habitations of the middle and lower classes. Each insula consisted of several sets of apartments, generally let out to different families, and was frequently surrounded by shops. The houses described by Mr. Pollen appear to have had no upper story, but as ground became more valuable in Rome, houses were built to such a height as to be a source of danger, and in the time of Augustus there were not only strict regulations as to building, but the height was limited to 70 feet. The Roman furniture of the time was of the most costly kind. Tables were made of marble, gold, silver, and bronze, and were engraved, damascened, plated, and enriched with precious stones. The chief woods used were cedar, pine, elm, olive, ash, ilex, beech, and maple. Ivory was much used, and not only were the arms and legs of couches and chairs carved to represent the limbs of animals, as has been noted in the Assyrian, Egyptian, and Greek designs. But other parts of furniture were ornamented by carvings in bas-relief of subjects taken from Greek mythology and legend. Veneers were cut and applied, not as some have supposed for the purpose of economy, but because by this means the most beautifully marked or figured specimens of the woods could be chosen, and a much richer and more decorative effect produced than would be possible when only solid timber was used. As a prominent instance of the extent to which the Romans carried the costliness of some special pieces of furniture, we have it recorded on good authority Mr. Pollen that the table made for Cicero cost a million sesterces, a sum equal to about L9.000, and that one belonging to Kinjuba was sold by auction for the equivalent of L10.000. Cicero's table was made of a wood called the Inwood which was brought from Africa and held in the highest esteem. It was valued not only on account of its beauty but also from superstitious or religious reasons. The possession of the Inwood was supposed to bring good luck, and its sacredness arose from the fact that from it was produced the incense used by the priests. Dr. Edward Clapton, of St. Thomas Hospital, who has made a collection of woods named in the scriptures, has managed to secure a specimen of the Inwood, which a friend of his obtained on the Atlas Mountains. It resembles the woods which we know as Toyer and Emboina, Roman, like Greek houses were divided into two portions the front for reception of guests and the duties of society, with the back for household purposes, and the occupation of the wife and family, for although the position of the Roman wife was superior to that of her Greek contemporary, which was little better than that of a slave, still it was very different to its later development. The illustration given here of a repast in the house of Sallust, represents the host and his eight male guests reclining on the seats of the period each of which held three persons, and was called a triclinium, making up the favorite number of a Roman dinner party. 
and possibly giving us the proverbial saying, not less than the graces nor more than the muses, which is still held to be a popular regulation for a dinner party. From discoveries at Herculaneum and Pompeii a great deal of information has been gained of the domestic life of the wealthier Roman citizens. And there is a useful illustration at the end of this chapter of the furniture of a library or study in which the designs are very similar to the Greek ones we have noticed, it is not improbable they were made and executed by Greek workmen. It will be seen that the books such as were then used, instead of being placed on shelves or in a bookcase, were kept in round boxes called scrinia, which were generally of beechwood, and could be locked or sealed when required. The books in rolls or sewn together were thus easily carried about by the owner on his journeys. Mr. Hungerford Pollen mentions that wearing apparel was kept in vestiaria, or wardrobe rooms, and he quotes Plutarch's anecdote of the purple cloaks of Lucullus, which were so numerous that they must have been stored in capacious hanging closets rather than in chests. In the atrium, or public reception room, was probably the best furniture in the house. According to Mules' essay on Roman villas, It was here that numbers assembled daily to pay their respects to their patron, to consult the legislator, to attract the notice of the statesman, or to derive importance in the eyes of the public from an apparent intimacy with a man in power. The growth of the Roman Empire eastward, the colonization of Oriental countries, and subsequently the establishment of an Eastern Empire, produced gradually an alteration in Greek design, and though, if we were discussing the merits of design and the canons of taste, This might be considered a decline, still its influence on furniture was doubtless to produce more ease and luxury, more warmth and comfort, than would be possible if the outline of every article of useful furniture were decided by a rigid adherence to classical principles. We have seen that this was more consonant with the public life of an Athenian, but the Romans, in the later period of the empire, with their wealth, their extravagance, their slaves, their immorality and gross sensuality lived in a splendor and with a prodigality that well accorded with the gorgeous coloring of eastern hangings and embroideries, of rich carpets and comfortable cushions, of the lavish use of gold and silver, and meritorious use and redundant ornament. This slight sketch, brief and inadequate as an island of a history of furniture from the earliest time of which we have any record, until from the extraordinary growth of the vast Roman Empire, the arts and manufactures of every country became as it were centralized and focused in the palaces of the wealthy Romans, brings us down to the commencement of what has been deservedly called the greatest event in history, the decline and fall of this enormous empire. For fifteen generations, for some five hundred years, did this decay, this vast revolution, proceed to its conclusion. Barbarian hosts settled down in provinces they had overrun and conquered. The old pagan world died as it were and the new Christian era dawned, from the latter end of the second century until the last of the Western Caesars, in AD 476, an island with the exception of a short interval when the strong hand of the great Theodosius stayed the avalanche of Rome's invaders, one long story of the defeat and humiliation of the citizens of the greatest power the world has ever known, it is a vast drama that the genius and patience of a given has alone been able to deal with defying almost by its gigantic catastrophes and ever-raging turbulence the pen of history to chronicle and arrange. When the curtain rises on a new order of things, the age of paganism has passed away, and the period of the Middle Ages will have commenced. Illustration, the Roman triclinium, or dining room, the plan in the margin shows the position of guests, the place of honor was that which is indicated by, number one, 
and that of the host by number nine. The illustration is taken from Dr. Jacob von Fox, Kunstian House, Chapter II, The Middle Ages, period of 1000 years from fall of Rome, A.D. 476, to capture of Constantinople, 1453 The Crusades Influence of Christianity Chairs of St. Peter and Maximian at Rome, Ravenna and Venicedict of Leo II. Prohibiting image worship the rise of Venice Charlemagne and his successors the chair of Dagobert Pizan in character of furniture Norwegian carving Russian and Scandinavian the Anglo-Saxon Sir Walter Scott quoted descriptions of Anglo-Saxon houses and customs art in Flemish cities Gothic architecture the coronation chair at Westminster Abbey. Penshurst French furniture in the 14th century description of rooms the South Kensington Museum transition from Gothic to Renaissance German carved work, the Credence the buffet, and dressoir. The history of furniture is so thoroughly a part of the history of the manners and customs of different peoples, that one can only understand and appreciate the several changes in style, sometimes gradual and sometimes rapid, by reference to certain historical events and influences by which such changes were effected. Thus, we have during the space of time known as the Middle Ages, a stretch of some 1.000 years dating from the fall of Rome itself, in A.D. 476, to the capture of Constantinople by the Turks under Muhammad I.I., in 1453, an historical panorama of striking incidents and great social changes bearing upon our subject. It was a turbulent and violent period, which saw the completion of Rome's downfall, the rise of the Carlovingian family, the subjection of Britain by the Saxons, the Danes, and the Normans, the extraordinary career and fortunes of Muhammad, the conquest of Spain and a great part of Africa by the Moors, and the Crusades, which, for a common cause, united the swords and spears of friend and foe. It was the age of monasteries and convents, of religious persecutions and of heroic struggles of the Christian Church. It was the age of feudalism, chivalry, and war, but, towards the close, a time of comparative civilization and progress of darkness giving way to the light which followed, the night of the Middle Ages preceding the dawn of the Renaissance, with the growing importance of Constantinople, the capital of the Eastern Empire, families of well-to-do citizens flocked thither from other parts, bringing with them all their most valuable possessions, and the houses of the great became rich in ornamental furniture, the style of which was a mixture of Eastern and Roman, that island a corruption of the early classic Greek developing into the style known as Byzantine. The influence of Christianity upon the position of women materially affected the customs and habits of the people. Ladies were allowed to be seen in chariots and open carriages, the designs of which, therefore, improved and became more varied. The old custom of reclining at meals ceased, and guests sat on benches, and though we have, with certain exceptions, such as the chair of St. Peter at Rome, and that of Maximian in the cathedral at Ravenna, no specimens of furniture of this time. We have in the old Byzantine ivory bas-reliefs such representations of circular throne chairs and of ecclesiastical furniture as suffice to show the class of woodwork then in vogue. The chair of St. Peter is one of the most interesting relics of the Middle Ages. The woodcut will show the design, which island like other work of the period, Byzantine, and the following description is taken from Mr. Hungerford Pollen's introduction to the South Kensington catalogue. The chair is constructed of wood overlaid with carved ivory work and gold. The back is bound together with iron. It is a square with solid front and arms. The width in front is 39 inches, the height in front 30 inches. 
showing that a scabellum or footstool must have belonged to it. In the front are 18 groups or compositions from the Gospels, carved in ivory with exquisite fineness, and worked with inlay of the purest gold. On the outer sides are several little figures carved in ivory. It formed, according to tradition, part of the furniture of the house of the Senator Pudens, an early convert to the Christian faith. It is he who gave to the church his house in Rome, of which much that remains is covered by the church of St. Pudenziana. Pudens gave this chair to St. Peter, and it became the throne of the sea. It was kept in the old basilica of St. Peter's. Since then it has been transferred from place to place. Until now it remains in the present church of St. Peter's, but is completely hidden from view by the seat or covering made in 1667, by Bernini, out of bronze taken from the Pantheon. Much has been written about this famous chair. Cardinal Wiseman and the Cavalier de Rossi have defended its reputation and its history, and Mr. Nesbitt, some years ago, read a paper on the subject before the Society of Antiquaries. Formerly there was in Venice another chair of St. Peter, of which there is a sketch from a photograph in Mrs. Oliphant's Makers of Venice. It is said to have been a present from the Emperor Michel, son of Theophilus 824-864 to the Venetian Republic in recognition of services rendered, by either the Dutch Grey Donico, who died in 1864, or his predecessor, against the Mohammedan incursions, fragments only now remain, and these are preserved in the church of St. Pietro, at Castello, there is also a chair of historic fame preserved in Venice, and now kept in the treasury of street marks, originally in Alexandria, it was sent to Constantinople and formed part of the spoils taken by the Venetians in 1204. Like both the other chairs, this was also ornamented with ivory plagues, but these have been replaced by ornamental marble. The earliest of the before-mentioned chairs, namely, the one at Ravenna, was made for the Archbishop about 546 to 556, and is thus described in Mr. Maskell's Handbook on Ivories. In the Science and Art series, the chair has a high back round in shape, and is entirely covered with plagues of ivory arranged in panels carved in high relief with scenes from the Gospels and with figures of saints. The plagues have borders with foliated ornaments, birds and animals, flowers and fruits filling the intermediate spaces. Do some are names amongst the most remarkable subjects. The Annunciation, the Adoration of the Wise Men, the Flight into Egypt, and the Baptism of Our Lord. The chair has also been described by Passeri the famous Italian antiquary, and a paper was read upon it, by Sir Didby Wyatt, before the Arundel Society, in which he remarked that as it had been fortunately preserved as a holy relic, it wore almost the same appearance as when used by the prelate for whom it was made, save for the beautiful tint with which time had invested it, long before the general breakup of the vast Roman Empire, influences had been at work to decentralize art, and cause the migration of trained and skillful artisans to countries where their work would build up fresh industries, and give an impetus to progress, where hitherto there had been stagnation. One of these influences was the decree issued in AD 726 by Leo II, Emperor of the Eastern Empire, prohibiting all image worship. The consequences to art of such a decree were doubtless similar to the fanatical proceedings of the English Puritans of the 17th century, and artists driven from their homes, were scattered to the different European capitals, where they were gladly received and found employment and patronage. It should be borne in mind that at this time Venice was gradually rising to that marvelous position of wealth and power which she afterwards held, 
a ruler of the waters and their powers, and such she was, her daughters had their daughters from spoils of nations, and the exhaustless east poured in her lap all gems in sparkling showers, in purple was she robed and of her feasts monarchs partook, and deemed their dignity increased, her wealthy merchants were well acquainted with the arts and manufactures of other countries, and Venice would be just one of those cities to attract the artist refugee. It is indeed here that wood carving as an art may be said to have specially developed itself, and though, from its destructible nature, there are very few specimens extant dating from this early time, yet we shall see that two or three hundred years later ornamental woodwork flourished in a state of perfection which must have required a long probationary period. Illustration, Dagobert Chair, Chair of Dagobert, of gilt bronze, now in the Musée des Souverains, Paris originally as a folding chair said to be the work of St. Eloy, 7th century, back and arms added by the Abbe Sugger in 12th century. There is an electrotype reproduction in the South Kensington Museum, turning from Venice. During the latter end of the 8th century the star of Charlemagne was in the ascendant, and though we have no authentic specimen, and scarcely a picture of any wooden furniture of this reign, we know that, in appropriating the property of the Gallo-Romans, the Frank Emperor Kin and his chiefs were in some degree educating themselves to higher notions of luxury and civilization. Paul Lacroix, in Manners, Customs, and Dress of the Middle Ages, tells us that the Tricorium or dining room was generally the largest hall in the palace. Two rows of columns divided it into three parts, one for the royal family, one for the officers of the household, and the third for the guests, who were always very numerous. No person of rank who visited the king could leave without sitting at his table or at least draining a cup to his health. The king's hospitality was magnificent, especially on great religious festivals, such as Christmas and Easter. In other portions of this work of reference we read of boxes to hold articles of value, and of rich hangings, but beyond such allusions little can be gleaned of any furniture besides the celebrated chair of Dagobert illustrated on page 21, now in the Louvre and of which there is a cast in the South Kensington Museum, dates from some 150 years before Charlemagne, and is probably the only specimen of furniture belonging to this period which has been handed down to us. It is made of gilt bronze, and is said to be the work of a monk. For the designs of furniture of the 10th to the 14th centuries we are in a great measure dependent upon old illuminations and missiles of these remote times. They represent chiefly the seats of state used by sovereigns on the occasions of grand banquets, or of some ecclesiastical function, and from the valuable collections of these documents in the national libraries of Paris and Brussels, some illustrations are reproduced, and it is evident from such authorities that the designs of state furniture in France and other countries dominated by the Carlovingian monarchs were of Byzantine character. That pseudo-classic style which was the prototype of furniture of about a thousand years later, when the Caesarism of Napoleon I during the early years of the 19th century, produced so many designs which we now recognize as empire. No history of medieval woodwork would be complete without noticing the Scandinavian furniture and ornamental wood carving of the 10th to the 15th centuries. There are in the South Kensington Museum, plaster casts of some three or four carved doorways of Norwegian workmanship, of the 10th, 11th, and 12th centuries in which scrolls are entwined with contorted monsters, or, to quote Mr. Lovett's description, dragons of hideous aspect and serpents of more than usually tortuous proclivities, the woodcut of a carved lintel conveys a fair idea of this work, 
and also of the old juniper wood tankards of a much later time. There are also at Kensington other casts of curious Scandinavian woodwork of more Byzantine treatment, the originals of which are in the museums of Stockholm and Copenhagen, where the collection of antique woodwork of native production is very large and interesting, and proves how wood carving, as an industrial art, has flourished in Scandinavia from the early Viking times. One can still see in the old churches of Borgund and Hietterdal much of the carved woodwork of the 7th and 8th centuries, and lindels and porches full of national character are to be found in Thilamarken. Under this heading of Scandinavian may be included the very early Russian school of ornamental woodwork. Before the accession of the Romanov dynasty in the 16th century, the Rurik race of kings came originally from Finland, then a province of Sweden, and, so far as one can see from old illuminated manuscripts, there was a similarity of design to those of the early Norwegian and Swedish carved lintels which have been noticed above. The covers and caskets of early medieval times were to know inconsiderable items in the valuable furniture of a period when the list of articles coming under that definition was so limited. These were made in oak for general use, and some were of good workmanship, but of the very earliest none remain. There were, however, others, smaller and of a special character made in ivory of the walrus and elephant, of horn and whalebone, besides those of metal. In the British Museum is one of these, of which the cover is illustrated on the following page, representing a man defending his house against an attack by enemies armed with spears and shields. Other parts of the casket are carved with subjects and runic inscriptions which have enabled Mr. Stevens, an authority on this period of archaeology, to assign its date to the 8th century, and its manufacture to that of Northumbria. It most probably represents a local incident, and part of the inscription refers to a word signifying treachery. It was purchased by Mr. A. W. Franks, FSA and is one of the many valuable specimens given to the British Museum by its generous curator. Of the furniture of our own country previous to the 11th or 12th centuries we know but little. The habits of the Anglo-Saxons were rude and simple, and they advanced but slowly in civilization until after the Norman invasion, to convey However, to our minds some idea of the interior of a Saxon Thames castle, we may avail ourselves of Sir Walter Scott's antiquarian research, and borrow his description of the chief apartment in Rotherwood, the hospitable hall of Cedric the Saxon, though the time treated of in Ivanhoe is quite at the end of the 12th century, yet we have in Cedric a type of man who would have gloried in retaining the customs of his ancestors, who detested and despised the new-fashioned manners of his conquerors and who came of a race that had probably done very little in the way of refurnishing for some generations. If, therefore, we have the reader's pardon for relying upon the mice and scene of a novel for an authority, we shall imagine the more easily what kind of furniture our Anglo-Saxon forefathers indulged in, in a hall, the height of which was greatly disproportioned to its extreme length and width, a long oaken table formed of planks rough-hewn from the forest, and which had scarcely received any polished stood ready prepared for. 